Okay, cool. Um, so how was your, uh, how was your conference? Was it good? It was, it was good. It was very conferency. It, yeah, as conferences tend to be. I mean, conferences are kind of a mixture between vacation and work. Yeah. Like the nights, yeah, I'm sure. the nights are always not worky. <laughs> <laughs> Bunch of drunk academics. But during, yeah, basically, but during the, well, I have some adventures to share that I don't know if I want to share in a public space. (laughs) All Um, right, all right. I think you might have already told me about one of those uh, adventures on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I think I did. I think I did. Let's just, yeah, uh, Atlanta is cool. Atlanta is interesting. They're were more gay people than I expected to see in Atlanta. So there you go. Yeah. Also, uh, speaking of Atlanta, um, there's a there's a young artist that some of you may not know about who really needs a plug from our show. His name's Donald Glover, and he has a <laughs> a great program on FX called Atlanta. I saw that advertised while I was riding the the Metra which is Atlanta's uh, public train, which public is actually, transport, yeah. they actually have pretty decent public transport. Yeah, no, Atlanta's a cool place. It's just that it's in Georgia, you know, you know. Its main problem, well, okay. <laughs> I guess that depends on who you talk to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But... Um, but yeah, like I don't know. That's the show Atlanta. It's very good. Its second season is. I think it just its second season just premiered like last week. I think. But yeah, that's a good show. I like it. I recommend it. It's not a cartoon. I do sometimes watch things with real humans in them. <laughs> yeah. And Atlanta is one of those things. So we should all watch Atlanta. Apparently. Yeah, that's my recommendation for the week. Um. So today. Yeah, uh, Today we are moving on. We have finished what we wanted to say about the Rugrats, and we continuing our odyssey through Nickelodeon's <laughs> glory. I don't, I don't know if I want to say glory days, but when I was a child, I was watching. It was the glory days. Let's be honest. <laughs> so yeah, and obviously we haven't talked about other shows like Ren and Stimpy yet. We're mm-hmm. kind of. Tackling the more mundane, not mundane, mainstream shows. Okay. We're tackling the original, like, holy trinity of cartoons for 90s kids like us. Like, even my mom, when I told her the initial plan, she's like, oh, yeah, that's the holy trinity for 90s kids. So, <laughs> you know, uh, um, we're, we're, we're doing it right. We're starting off strong. So we are talking about none other hey Arnold. than Hey Arnold. All right. So, Hey Arnold originally aired on October 7th, 1996, and it ran until June 8th of 2004, which means that it ran for almost 10 years. And during that entire period of time, they were airing new stuff, although they finished production in 2001, so they were holding on to episodes and slowly disseminating them. Now, can I interject here? Um, I want to say that I read that Nickelodeon did something here that actually has happened to a lot of cartoons where they like 
sort of did Hey Arnold dirty, where there was this huge hiatus, and then they just sort of dumped all of the remaining episodes like at once without really publicizing it. Is that true? Have you read that too? I did not see that. What might have happened is that those air dates probably include syndicated reruns. Mm. So in this case, yeah. they may they may have had a relatively long run, but a lot of it was reruns. Yeah. The information yeah, I could be. the information I pulled from didn't really make a distinction. So what may have really happened is that they ran new episodes from 96 to 2001. And then for three years afterwards, they ran complete reruns. Yeah, that could be that. So, okay. Go ahead with what yeah, the other information about the background. They, they, they did a movie in 2002 which some people might remember. What's crazy is that they just released a new movie called The Jungle Movie on in November, this past November. Yeah, I was reading about that. So it's still... They, they, they were definitely selling it to us, our age of people who are probably parents now sort of deal. Yeah. The, the show was created by Craig Bartlett, who did a stint on Pee-wee's Playhouse, which is actually, <laughs> uh, yeah, which is actually where he got the idea. So he he thought up a character, and then he, he made that character into a separate show. So I guess the people who, I know some people really like Pee-wee's Playhouse, so that gives you, like, another great thing, too. Mm-hmm. And the original sketches were um, also, they were claymation because, you know, Pee-wee's Playhouse, in addition to being, like, really, like, interesting and, like, artful and, like, was also kind of, like, psychedelic and unsettling in the way that claymation often is. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the shape of Arnold's head would have probably been even sillier in clay. <clears throat> yeah, like, more pronounced looking. So all of the music, which the show I always believed was iconic for, mm -hmm. had a lot has a lot of jazz, has country, has blues, has a lot of is it's kind of like a soundtrack to a city. Like living in a living yeah. in a residential city, which is interesting because I always thought that it was meant to reflect Brooklyn or some, yeah. some place in New York. And it turns out that while Brooklyn, there are elements of Brooklyn in there, that the city is, the city's official name is Hillwood, but it's a mix. Bartlett has said that there's Seattle in there, there's Portland in there, and then there's Brooklyn, which are all the places that he lived or grew up in. So he's drawing direct inspiration and created this city which you see like New York because they have like a city park with a with a lake and that screams Central Park. But then they have forests nearby with pines, which speaks to Washington. So you get all of it in there, which is cool. I, I think I, some things make more sense now to me. Yeah, it does now to me because it's like to me it was always aggressively like – Brooklyn or maybe Queens, maybe, you know, <clears throat> um, but you know, that kind of thing that they do on cartoons where it's like, 
oh, the city's named something else or you never say the name of the city, but it's like it's clearly it's New York. You know, that's how I always felt. But the way that how easily they can go camping and stuff like that makes more sense now. So if you ever watch it again, just try and (laughs) apparently there are clues about it being set in Washington. So if you really if you're a Washington Washingtonian or a Seattleite, maybe you'll see things that I, having never been to either of those places, will notice about it. Yeah. So we, <clears throat> yeah, because like I've been to New York, but not Seattle, you know. Yeah, exactly. Same. So I'm going to go over sort of the main cast because the cat there's a lot like the show has a huge cast of people. And also changes in cast members over the run of the show. Yeah, so we've got kind of our our fab five here, which is <laughs> Arnold, Helga, Grandpa Phil, Grandma Gertrude, and Gerald. So we've got Arnold, <clears throat> the main character, football head, but he was voiced by four different people over the run of the show, and which is wild. Yeah, lots of turnover, apparently. So those those in order are Torin Caudell, Philip Van Dyke, Spencer Klein, and Mason Cotton. Helga was voiced by Francesca Smith. Grandpa Phil, which great performance, was... I mean, oh, yeah. everybody, everybody gives a great performance. There's no doubt about the quality of the voice acting. But uh, mm-hmm. Grandpa Phil was voiced by Dan Castel- Castellenta. Gertrude, who everybody should remember as Nuts, was voiced by <laughs> Tress McNeil or ne- Neely. And Gerald was voiced by two people. First was Jamil Smith, and the second was Benjamin Flores Jr. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> but okay, you mentioned that Grandpa is a great performance, and, and then you were like, "Well, everyone gives a great performance," and that's true. There's tons of great <clears throat> um, voice performances in the show, but Grandpa's performance is just really, really top notch. Like some of the best voice acting you're gonna hear anywhere, really, in my opinion. It, it's undeniable that Grandpa was just one of the. Well, he took the father figure role for Arnold, so he was the one providing advice, telling old <clears throat> stories. A lot of that hinges on him, but also he's got this old, like, crotchety brand of wisdom. Yeah. And also sometimes a little bit crazy. He also just has to poop constantly. Yeah. Which I think is great. Everything gives him the shits. Raspberries, (laughs) prunes. Watermelon. Mexican food. I I think now that we're getting to a discussion of messages being sent by the show itself, right? uh, uh, Just as a reminder to everybody, the show generally follows the life of a certain neighborhood. So it's neighborhood kids... People who live in the boarding house that Arnold's grandparents own, people in the school, that's like the three, and various denizens that run around through the neighborhood, like the Jolly Ollie Man, or 
uh, stoop kid, which only ever shows up once, by the way. Uh, there's only the one episode focused on him, but there's an episode where he shows up as like a bit, you know, Arnold's like, oh, hey, stoop kid, you know, and he's there. Um, but it's a very like sort of much like actually neighborhoods are a very character driven show. And obviously Arnold is our main character. Arnold is our vehicle, but it becomes much more of sort of an ensemble show the further into the show that you get. Exactly, because you get people who go through their own stories. I particularly <laughs> enjoy Harold and his foyers into Judaism or mm -hmm. le learning about becoming a man or being responsible, standing up against people who have a shit ton of fat shaming going on. So much fat so shaming. So much fat shaming in this show. Oh my yeah. God. For okay. real. I want to get to the fat shaming in a second, but can I share my favorite little theory about Harold that I have? Because I love Harold. Okay, what's your theory? Just as a reminder <laughs> to people who might not remember, remember, Harold is the dude, he's kind of got a football head with a little like mole hill on top. He's the big, he's, he's a bigger kid. He's always threatening to beat people up and he's got kind the of blue, obnoxious. He's got the blue backwards cap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually posted in this, um, autism group that I'm part of on Facebook. I'm like, Hey, does anyone else think that Harold could be autistic? And people were like, you know what? Like, yeah, kind of. Uh, and some people were like, look, there's a lot of kids in that show who could be autistic, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I think there's like a fair amount of evidence if you want to look for it for Harold being autistic. So that's my, that's my headcanon, if you will. Okay, okay. I can I can work with it. I can do it. And <laughs> Harold's nice because he breaks I he's a vehicle for a lot of interesting aspects of development. I don't know. For example, in one episode, it's shown that he generally is not known as very intelligent. But mm -hmm. The, the kids in, in the classroom take an aptitude test, one of those things that people do in elementary school that tries to tell them what careers or jobs they might be good at. And we can discuss the psychometric validity of those things, which, spoiler <laughs> alert, some of them are really bad. But, but anyway, and he, he gets the wrong one. He actually get, gets Helga's. So he's graded as super, the test is like, you can do anything. You, you can, yeah. you are good, you are smart and ambitious and well enough put together that you can do anything. And so when he gets this test, he starts doing and saying intelligent things. Like he's solving. And not just like typical not just like he solves a rubik's cube and stuff like that no like he designs a beautiful zen garden for the roof of his building that he builds with his dad he yeah he solves division that he late, earlier thought was was bad or hard and everybody mm -hmm. starts treating him that way too whereas helga gets heralds and of course he originally filled it in. He didn't answer the questions. He just made a big H with the bubbles. <laughs> so she's told 
You are Kate. You would you would be a good woodsman. <laughs> so she starts acting like a country bumpkin. Yeah, like a stereotype of like what a country yokel is like. Which in and you of know? itself is interesting. The the show is very city centric. So it it's, is. It's interesting that they they employ stereotypes of country people in a way that you would expect a city dweller to yeah. stereotype a country bumpkin. And I actually love Mr. Simmons calls her out on it. She, he's like, where did you get the impression that all people from the city talk like that? All people from the country talk like that. And yeah. I loved that. I thought which, it was great. Which um, we, sh- we should definitely talk about Mr. Simmons, but that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. That's a can of worms. Um, so, so Harold is great. <laughs> And we, we spoke about the positivity of Jewish role models on during Rugrats. And I think mm-hmm. Hey Arnold only, it, it refines that a lot because we get to see, we get to see like a, a mentor, like a rabbi explain aspects of Judaism and why it's not about God. It's be like he's like be a mensch be a good person you like you do charity you help people becoming a man is about taking responsibility and being a work like a constructive member of your community and that mm-hmm. is such a powerful secular appropriate message about Judaism and i think that if rugrats taught me about the existence of things like hanukkah or Moses that shows like, Hey Arnold kind of brought all of that into. Into frame, like, you know, like what's relevant, you know, um, like how how it works in a person's life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rugrats showed us like, this is what like Judaism is culturally. Right. And Hey Arnold, even if briefly shows us like, this is what it means to, like live your faith as a Jewish person, right? It's about being a constructive member of your community, which is a really cool message. Like, especially because like, I never knew, like I lived in the South. I never knew any Jewish people until I was like 18. <clears throat> yeah. So I thought it was really cool. I, I just wanted to note that because it, it was a continue, a continuing theme. And I feel like, that is really good as a child. I'm glad that I, I saw that. Yeah, for sure. And plus, Harold's rabbi is really funny. He's, like, a, he's just sassy. He's very sassy. He's very... I feel like he is well-meaning, but he's also sick of everybody's shit. Yeah, definitely. I get, like, I get the distinct feeling from the rabbi character that, like, that was someone in the writer's room, like, that was their rabbi. <laughs> you know, like, I very much get that feeling from that character. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is an actual person. <laughs> it, it just feels too organic and a little bit sharp yeah. not to have been based in somebody's personal experience. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, like, Harold's definitely one of my favorite ancillary characters. He's also one of the bigger ancillary characters right because we get this ensemble we we initially start with what you said was the fab five we have arnold gerald helga and grandma and grandpa 
And then we get, as we expand into an ensemble, we have people who are sort of uh, series regular rather than recurring, right? <laughs> you know, so Harold, I think, would be a series regular, um, you know, Sid, series regular, whereas maybe Eugene or Stinky, I might say, are recurring. Yeah. Because <clears throat> they'll occasionally get an episode that's about them. But very rarely, and usually episodes that are about them are about them and also Arnold or something like that, you know? Yeah, those mostly side characters are usually the, the subject of the episode is the relationship of Arnold yes. to those characters. Yes. And, oh, Arnold and his relationships are actually... Super, like, obviously they're super central to the show. The show's about Arnold. But um, more so than a lot of other shows, and particularly kids' shows, the show is really more than anything about those relationships and, and like, maintaining those relationships, um, I would say. <clears throat> um, do, you, do you get what I'm saying with that? Mo the vast majority of the conflict is based in some sort of relationship conflict. Yeah. It's usually, uh, you know, if you want to go with the classical sort of literary model, it's usually man versus man. I right? was just about to say, it's either man versus man or man versus society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's not a whole lot of man versus self, um, at least as the major elements of the show, which kind of makes sense. Um, he's nine. Like, you're not at that age. You're dealing a lot with how to relate to other people, but not a whole lot with how to relate to yourself, you know? And a lot of the show, if it's ever about the self, sort of has to do with creating a self that you want in front of other people. Mm -hmm. The show's very... I guess I mean to say that the show is very much about how... Kids manage impressions of, like, themselves to others, being mm -hmm. accepted, not wanting to be laughed at. Um, I mean, the kids are a really interesting, dynamic set of subset of society because you see all of this, di these different sorts of conflicts, um, people wanting to be nice, people, like... You see the classic kid, like a boy likes a girl and then gets made fun of by other boys for liking girls mm -hmm. stuff. Or you get the kid who's too nice and everybody picks on them because they are like too nice. And yeah. th there's all these sorts of little kid conflicts that go on. And I have to tell you, the kids are bitches sometimes. Like, so, okay, oh, yeah. they, like they are awful little people when but it's like authentic to how children are i feel i mean it's authentic I, my point is not to demonize them my point is to say that i think they're an accurate reflection of how kids learn moral lessons through mm -hmm. making mistakes oh yeah so, yeah because there are times when i'm watching the show and i'm like jesus like these kids are mean. <laughs> like, well, good lord. And before we get into specific examples, one thing that I have sometimes trouble understanding is that at one moment, 
the kids in this classroom exemplify a a tribal mentality where they're all together in something and they treat each other like they're close they're all close friends and they work well together and they don't make fun of each other and then there are other times where they seem to break into individual units like or pairs or triples Mm -hmm. and that those pairs or triples fight amongst each other and people like kids one moment Helga will be hanging out with some of the girls and then the next moment they'll be making fun of one of the girls in sort of like a brutal way you see this with the guys too oh yeah like Harold's relationship to the group is really unstable be, to me as a viewer because on the one hand he he's threatened to bully people and he's thre- he threatens violence and he definitely tends to get his way but people make fun of him behind his back but then in other episodes they're all hanging out like they're all really good friends and so it's really confusing yeah. How, how they do both. And, I think, and it's also interesting to me, particularly with Harold, because Harold is several years older than the rest of the kids, but he's still like in their grade. Um, so like he would probably hang out with them and he's clearly not like emotionally mature enough to really hang out very much with like seventh graders, you know, which is where he would typically be in the schooling system at his age. Um, so I wonder if you know just trying to like make sense out of that back and forth if it's also confusing for Harold and the kids sometimes about him because if we talked about previously about how uh in our society children are like artificially broken up by age group right and if it's maybe confusing for them that it's not in this one situation yeah, because you see other times where they make ready ready use of that stereotype to determine their social world. Fourth graders versus fifth graders is a big one. Or mm-hmm. fourth graders being unable to interact with the aristoc- aristocratic sixth graders. Like, mm-hmm. there are a lot of these divisions so that could be a way to look at it that this one moment there lacks this artificial division but they're older so he's both in a position to control them but also socially he's a part of their class Mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely i don't know um because typically what you see in this show is it's it's mostly the fourth graders hanging out together. They'll have interactions with, you know, kids of other ages, but primarily it's, you know, they're all nine, right? They're all in the fourth grade. And most of the interactions with other grades is bad. Yeah. Are negative. Except for actually in one of the very early episodes where Arnold and Gerald go on a double date with two sixth grade girls who, um, it's funny because, to me as an adult, I'm like, these sixth grade girls are like absurdly mature for 11 and 12 year olds. But then I'm like, well, that's how they would appear to a nine year old. You know, they would appear to be very sophisticated and mature to a nine year old, I'm sure. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And although most of the show is not 
filtered from the perspective of a nine-year-old, I think that is one of the things that is. Yeah, definitely. Um, like a lot of the time it's just sort of like normal and not super limited to a child's perspective. But then there are times where it's very much like, oh, this is clearly like this is grounded in the perception of our main characters, you know? I definitely, based on this sort of discussion of classes, I think Paige will probably have a lot to say about this, but the show, because of its city roots, intentionally or not, I believe touches on a lot of class issues, and that is, they're really good, I think, to examine. Yes, yeah. Um, because, okay, here for one, we, we get one episode where it's extremely stark, right? We have this kid, Lorenzo, who is a very, very wealthy kid who attends their school. Um, and he gets paired up with Sid um, in a group project. And this is the first time we really learn about who Sid is. And, you know, he's all excited to go to Lorenzo's house and they see, you see them in Lorenzo's room and it's very, he's wealthy, you know, it's the room of a very wealthy child. And he says, you know, Sid, I'll come to your place, uh, tomorrow. And Sid immediately gets nervous. And of course me with my class analysis and like having watched pretty in pink a bunch of times, I'm like, Oh, Sid's nervous. Cause he's poor, <laughs> you know? And then you see Sid's room and they later in the show describe it as a bland, boring, normal room. But, like, it's not a bland, boring, normal room. It's the room of a kid who is poor. But like, the outside of his house, like, there are windows boarded up. Like, his room is clearly, like, either his family owns that place and don't ha doesn't have the money to keep it under repair. Or they have a really bad landlord who's not keeping it in good repair. You know? Like, the, he's clearly the sign not wealthy yeah, yeah sorry um this definitely the sign that it's not a nice place to live is because the the only light in the room is just a light bulb on a wire yeah no shade it, it, no no fan just solitary utilitarian light bulb hanging in a room and the room is messy and the ceiling is chipping and it's got cracks in it the floor there's places where the drywall has come away the, the floor has carpet, but also wood showing, like the carpet is ripped. So overall, it paints the picture of this kid isn't living on the street, but compared to a perfect posh bedroom that has a remote control train and a nice mm -hmm. computer, that mm -hmm. he's got nothing compared to that and you it evokes immediately this sort of anxiety and Paige you can talk about like the economics of that I have something psychological to add to it I just don't want to step on your toes yeah I mean so the thing is we immediately see I don't get the that the show is giving the message that poverty is something to be ashamed of, like in any way, I don't feel that message, but I feel that it is sending the message that Sid is aware of and ashamed of his poverty, which is very true for, for kids, especially in that age, they become very aware of what they don't have. Right. Um, and it shows very clearly. And because of the messages that are around them, right. About, what it means to be poor, they can experience a lot of shame and anxiety about people knowing 
that they're the poor kid, right? And I see that happening in um, Sid's case, and it's just really stark because he's interacting with the wealthiest kid in class, so it really throws it into relief. Um, I feel like the show... The show deals with it in the way that you would expect a kid's cartoon and sort of the liberal mindset to deal with it, which is the rich kid is like, oh, that doesn't matter. I just wanted to be your friend. You lied to me about it, but I'm going to forgive you and we can be friends. And look, all it takes is for rich people to be nice to like bridge this class divide. And for the kid's perspective, like that's fine. Like I get like naturally... What else do you want to be the message that you send about that when you create that scenario? But if we're doing more intense analysis of that situation, the fact of the matter is is that it's cool that the wealthier person is cool about it. But that doesn't solve the underlying problem and it it will not solve the underlying problem that anxiety that Sid feels will likely exhibit itself when meeting other high class people. It's just with, Oh, absolutely. This one dude. Oh, that I feel like I can be myself, but I mean, Sid still goes home to a rough place in a rough neighborhood and is still going to experience likely what I stereotype threat when he interacts with people of higher classes, because another aspect of being in a minority group or in a group that's negatively stereotyped, which the poor is certainly one of those groups, is that when you are around other people, what happens is, is that you are vigilant to make sure you're not doing it. Sorry, vigilant to what? Uh, Vigilant you are vigilant to your behaviors or aspects of the situation because you don't want to accidentally do something that will confirm the stereotype because yes. uh, So we see this a lot with girls in math. So the stereotype being that girls are bad at math. So when girls go to take a test on math, Mm -hmm. not only do they have to go through the taking the test part, but they also are anxious and vigilant about the stereotype that they're going to do poorly. The problem is, is that that produces cognitive load and it takes away mental capacity from doing well on the task. So funny story, worrying about doing poorly is an extra thing that people who are stereotyped have to worry about in the world. Whereas like the dudes can be like, dude, it's not a big deal. Like you, I do not believe that about you we're cool. It doesn't erase the stereotype and the dude doesn't understand why, what it's like to have to constantly worry about falling into a negative stereotype. So that's stereotype. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you could argue that Sid is going, is, is experiencing that in this episode. Yeah. And I think also what's interesting just to dig a little bit more into the class stuff that's in this show Um, this appears to be a primarily working class neighborhood that they live in. And we see a a mixture of sort of the range of, of middle to sort of lower class, right? So 
aside from Lorenzo, who is in the show to be sort of like comically wealthy, right? And give us a way to think about those things. Um, Helga is probably the wealthiest of anyone on the show. Like her dad owns a successful business that is successful enough that he is, you know, he can pay for commercials and things like that. Helga's dad is the Beeper King. Just if nobody mm-hmm. remembers, he owns a beeper emporium. Yeah. And so you you even see on a, the first episode we ever meet her dad, um, you know, they have a very nice RV and he's testing out all kinds of like fancy camping tech equipment that he might s- decide to sell in the store and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you see, you know, Gerald's family, he comes from... It, it looks like a comfortable middle class household. You know, it's there are like three or four kids, it looks like, in their family, um, two parent household. And um, Gerald's dad is very much a dad stereotype. You know, like, turn off the light in that room. <laughs> You're not using, you know, do you know how much electricity this costs? You know, a very like normal sort of middle class dad, you know, how his family's comfortable, but he's still like, money doesn't grow on trees, you know? Um, and then we see Arnold's family and I think that's a really interesting situation because, okay, boarding houses aren't even really a thing anymore. No, they are And you don't live in a boarding house if you have very much money, right? And I can't imagine that running the boarding house as old ass people is particularly lucrative. But they're, okay, so they're probably, first off, they're probably both collecting social security, but that's like a fixed limited income. So they make extra money using the boarding house, which is both their home and their business. Mm -hmm. So we get Arnold's probably sitting. The implication based on hints from the show is that his parents are academics. So I think that, well, they're, they're academics in the sense that they're explorers or biologists. Like they are people who are working in the jungle doing research. Yeah. I've never watched the movies, but from what I've read, it seems that a lot of the questions about like who and where are Arnold's parents um, are answered in the movies. Like they apparently like went to go do some kind of ecological survey or ethnography or something in South America when he was a young child and have just like never come back. And uh, what I read on Wikipedia is that like the story is like, they don't know what happened to his parents, (laughs) you you know, like, are they trapped? Did they die? Like, they don't know what happened. Is that uh, to your knowledge? Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. I think that's about the gist of what I remember, but they, um, the boarding house itself is where a lot of action takes place. So a lot of the relationships are kid-centric, but because the show follows Arnold, we see that this nine-year-old has a wealth, he has a community, which we talked about the importance of community during the Rugrats, and that carries over to the show too, is that Mm -hmm. he's got his peers, but he also has the boarding house tenants who he treats as his family. They are. Yeah, and that's explicitly emphasized pretty frequently. So it's, they, 
They are not just tenants. It is more like a community. Grandpa, though, naturally treats it more like a business because he's the person who has to deal with all the shit. And boy, do the tenants give him lots of shit to care about. Oh, yeah. So with this show, honestly, a lot most of like what I care about and want to and have things to say about are the characters. So can we pause for a second to discuss the wild cast of characters that lives in this boarding house? <laughs> like, good Lord. Um, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, you actually there are a lot of good lessons in the boarding house tenants. And I we have to start with grandma and grandpa themselves. Oh yeah, for sure. Let's go grandma first. Cause I don't have as much to say about grandma. Grandma, um, grandma's straight ahead. up crazy. She's a baller. She she's seems a baller. to have dementia. She's, she's <laughs> a straight up G and she may have a crippling biological illness. We don't, she may, it's unclear whether she chooses to be kind of crazy. Cause it's fun for her. Because she seems to be a very happy person and to be having a lot of fun being crazy. Well, but we never see her dude. fail to take care of herself or her family. So I would argue, no. I would argue she's just eccentric. Yeah, that may be the case. Or like, you know, on the Thanksgiving episode where Arnold's like, Grandma always thinks it's Fourth of July, so we do Fourth of July. But then at the end of that episode, he's like, "We're not doing the Fourth of July thing," and Grandma's like, "Fourth of July, Arnold." <laughs> It's Thanksgiving. And it's like, did she actually, like, then forget again that she had been treating it as Fourth of July? Or is she just like to fuck with people? <laughs> you know, uh, you, like. One, one and, hypothesis I had is that she acts like that because it provides levity to her family's life. Not that they have a bad life, but she's probably painfully aware of the absence of Arnold's parents. So she. I'm sure. She might be doing this because it's harmless, but it's fun and distracting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that definitely um, makes sense to me because I, I think it might it, I think it seems like it's Arnold's mom who is the child of um, Grandpa and Grandma. And um, I'm sure that they are very you know, aware of how difficult it must be for Arnold, right, to live in that situation as much as he feels that the borders are his family. Um, but we also learn when we when we have episodes where we get closer with Grandma, not only is she, like, a crazy person, but, like, she seems to have done a lot of really interesting stuff in her life. Yeah, and she is, okay, so she's a portrait of a second-wave feminist, in a lot of ways, I believe she, she gets involved in a lot of activism. Yeah, she does like the episode where they're going to tear down the sort of historic um, theater. Um, and she's like, nah. Yeah. She's really into like, she's not just into political action. She's into guerrilla action. Yeah, it's dope. It's really cool. <laughs> so so one episode, whenever there's some terrible thing to be fought, Grandma's there. So the first time she does it is when Arnold goes to an aquarium 
and they see this old turtle, but everybody throws shit at the turtle and everybody They're so draws, mean to the turtle. Everybody draws <laughs> on the turtle. And this is one of those cases where you're like, wow, these kids are fucking mean. They are terrible monsters. little monsters. And Arnold is never like that. And he's like, never. he feels bad for this turtle. So he goes to tell his grandma about it. And she's like, let's fucking put it in the ocean. And so yeah. they they drive, break in to the aquarium at night and clean up the turtle. But then grandma's like, let's, they, Arnold's like, I wish we could do something more. And so grandma's like, okay, let's just steal the turtle and go put it in the ocean. By the way, there are never consequences for this. No, like it, no, no. Nothing happens. They successfully steal the turtle and put it in the ocean. And grandma's like, we did a good thing, Arnold. And then they go home and the episode's over. <laughs> like, it never comes back up. The next time grandma is helping Arnold and his friends to save a tree that's been in the neighborhood for a very long time... And she steals, she like Tarzans onto a moving bulldozer and steers so it away. Cool. And then she steals By the, the way, bulldozer. From, uh, Helga's evil capitalist dad who like doesn't give a shit about the tree, you know, and uh, it's just like, I'm going to bulldoze this extremely old tree with a very cool tree house in it because I'm going to build a beeper shop here. It's and it's very much like. And also, that's, again, the resolution to this, that, like, anti-capitalist pro-environmental struggle is, like, the capitalist just decides to be nice, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, he's like, I'll build, uh, it's not worth the trouble, I'll build somewhere else. Yeah. But then they do kind of, um, they, I think they're kind of aware because they were like, yeah, we'll build it in the vacant lot where the kids play baseball. And then it's just sort of like, but um, tis and like the episodes over, you know, because it's like, that's the thing is like capitalists and like, they do not, they don't care, but wherever they choose to be is going to be important to someone in some way. Like Fuck. in order for him to build a new beeper shop, like other people will be worse off. Yeah, it's it's very much fuck the community. I'm going to make money. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Bob Pataki, dick. Bob Pataki <laughs> okay. is an embodiment of every negative thing I have to say about capitalism, masculinity and parenthood. Yeah, he is a small business tyrant like he but, is. We should okay, finish. let's finish talking about the boarding yeah, we should house finish. and then we could talk about Helga's family. <laughs> so, um, so Grandma's really cool. She does a number of things that are awesome, and I think she's benignly crazy. Grandpa is crotchety and not crazy in the same way, but he does some pretty eccentric stuff. And it's notable because he supports Arnold, but also sometimes he's like, dude, I'm going to watch you walk in public in this bunny uniform, but also I'm going to take pictures of it and laugh at you. And Oh, so, yeah, for sure. Like, you get the sense that he's trying to be supportive, but also is kind of, like, old and doesn't empathize as well anymore. Or, like, the time where Arnold's like, remember all the times you told me that you believed in me and that I could win? 
like, you know, and that really helped me. He's like, Griff was like, I didn't mean that. Like, I thought you were a goner. I just told you that on the off chance that the other kids would blow it. And it's so funny because it's like he'll dispense this wisdom that kids really need to hear. But if you push him on it, he'll be like, look, this is just something nice to say to help you grow into a normal human being. I obvi- I'm 81 years old. I obviously don't actually believe it. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I think is fantastic i love it perhaps it's just best to say that he's supportive but he's also a realist yeah and oh my god i love grandpa's um grandpa's stories when grandpa gives advice and he tells a long flashback story and sometimes arnold will be like grandpa is this gonna take for it there's a literal episode where he's like grandpa is this gonna be a long story and he's like yeah but it'll be full of gems of folksy wisdom so like shut up and listen yeah <laughs> you know so before he also it, loves to intentionally scare the kids. Oh yeah, he's a prankster. He's a huge prankster. He tells them scary stories with the explicit intention of like scaring the shit out of them, and it's very clear, like even to the audience, like at the like he is one hundred percent doing this on purpose to scare them. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is taking advantage of the situation. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that it's safe to say that he is very cool, but also sometimes a crotchety old man. Yeah, for sure. He gets really mad at the borders sometimes. Like, really mad. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to move to Florida mad at the borders. So he... Um, then there's other people. So... there's obviously a lot we could say about them. And maybe if we do a second episode, they'll come up again. But I really mostly if we're going to talk about the borders, I would like to focus on Mr. Kakashka and Mr. Wynn. Okay, those are the ones that are most interesting to me. So I I remember I vividly remembered both of these characters. Me too. Yeah. So these are two of the arguably most important borders because their stories are featured the most. So the first is Mr. Kakashka and Paige, why don't you say a couple things? I have to run to my door real quick. Sure. Okay. So Mr. Kakashka is just a monumental piece of shit, right? Um, He's clearly like an Eastern European immigrant You get the sense that maybe he came to America like after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, I'm only I'm towards the end of season three. So if they explain it in later seasons, sorry, I don't know about it. Um, But he has an American wife who's like young and, and hot and a hard worker and who is always super pissed off at him because Mr. Kakashka is the archetype of a bum. Um, he has literally never worked a day in his life. He's always gambling. He's super lazy. He's always asking his wife and everyone else for money and never doing anything. But like you still, he's like the most selfish person. And every time you hear his story, it's about like how selfish and, and shitty he is. But in this, at the same time, you still kind of love him anyway. He, um, he barely shows any growth, but he does show some. Some. Like the episode, the one episode where he's shown any growth is basically because everyone's like, 
dude, like, fuck you. I'm not going to give you any more money. And so Arnold helps him get a job delivering papers. And Mr. Kakashka completely takes advantage of Arnold and basically has Arnold delivering papers for him. But then Mr. Kakashka hears Mr. Wynn and um, what's his name? Demolition guy um, talking about basically what a lazy piece of shit he is and how he'll never work a day in his entire life and he's worthless. Um, and so out of pure, out of pure spite, Oscar, um, Oscar Kakashka goes and does his paper route that morning, <laughs> purely out of spite, but still, like, he does it, right? And he's, like, literally never, ever worked a day in his life. So, like, that's gross, you know? I think that he... And, he teaches a valuable lesson, though, for people watching the show. And Arnold eventually catches on, too. But Arnold is kind. Arnold does mm-hmm. so much for so many people that it's important, that I think, that people see a character that challenges even compassion to be measured. Because Arnold could plausibly help Mr. Kakashka forever. And that mm-hmm. turns from something beautiful into something terrible for Arnold because he's being taken advantage of. But yeah, he does and stick up for himself. Say here, let me just say here, I'm not super pro work or anything, you know. Um, but like the kind of lesson of Mr. Kakashka, the problem with him being a bum is that in order to support that, he takes advantage of everyone around him. And, like, Arnold sort of learns the lesson that there are sometimes people who, unless you tell them no, will just keep taking advantage of you. And, and that's true, you and, know. And that is something that you have to learn in life. And hopefully, with those people being firm with them, gets them to get their shit together. And that's you know? exactly the point, is that sometimes... I first came to this realization after reading a, a, a aphorism by Nietzsche, but um, it's like compassion can be a bad thing for both parties involved. Like compassion yes. is not uniformly positive. There are instances where trying to help when you don't think about how you're helping is harmful, but also sometimes what a person needs is not um, for you to facilitate their laziness, not in the work sense, but in the responsibility sense. Like if Arnold yeah. kept helping Mr. Kakashka, not only would he be letting him take advantage of him, but it would also prevent Kakashka from ever growing and past that. Like tough love, sometimes you got to give it. Yeah, for sure. So that's mis- that's basically Mr. Kakashka's like whole deal. But uh-huh. he's like, he has a funny accent and he does this little goofy laugh all the time. And so even though he's like a piece of shit, you're like, yeah, Mr. Kakashka, I love episodes with you. But, <laughs> you also, know? Like, but also his poor fucking wife. Poor Susie. Why doesn't she leave him? She, she, it is, it is the picture, not of an abusive relationship, but of a completely unequal manipulative relationship. He doesn't hurt her, but he steals from her and she works to support him. And this is actually one of those times where I think Arnold was wrong. And it's where she was going to leave him. But Arnold got involved and basically 
convinced them to stay together. And I took from that a very interesting lesson, and that's Arnold cares about family, and he's nine. Mm -hmm. So, of course, to him, it's like me when my parents divorced. When I was like six, I was like, Mom and Dad, why don't you just get back together? Like, I don't understand why you two can't be together. You divorce, but just just don't do that. It's the same yeah. thing where he's like, I like you two together because we're a family unit. And so I'm going to try and get you to stick together. And in a childish sort of way, it's very admirable and he's very selfless and he tries to get these two to realize they love each other. But in an adult perspective sort of way, it's actually kind of shitty because like she, she should leave him. She should leave him. Absolutely. She should leave him. And she should explain to Arnold that, like, I don't care if you like Mr. Kakashka, I'm in a relationship with him. You don't have to work to support him. I do. And mm -hmm. I love him, but we cannot live together. That just cannot be a thing. And so me as a viewer is like, no, you should fucking leave him. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, Susie... Like, I don't know if you heard me because you were going to the door when I was saying this part, but his wife, I was like, you know, like she's young and like hot and she works really hard. And in the episode where, where Arnold, you know, gives tough love to, to Oscar Kakashka, she literally, he was like, why can't you work overtime? She's like, I'm already working 20 hours overtime a week. Like, how much do you want me to work? You know, because it's like he he will just continue completely taking advantage of her forever. You know, she's doing everything and he puts in no effort. So, yeah, Susie, like, I'm team Susie. She should leave him. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. As much as I say that you kind of love him for it, like, I would not, like, that's not, that's not a good situation to be in as his uh, wife. So Like, the, poor Susie. The show's characters are flawed, and in a cartoon, that's really good to see. Like, it's not one-sided, yeah. and it, it paints a realistic picture of the world. Yeah, and actually in the show, we have... When we get to Helga's family, we're going to see we have, like, quite a few women in the show who are clearly deeply unhappy in their relationships, but stay in those relationships oh, in a way that I think is very real. I, um, I think, like, the show – I think – I do not think that the show's authors were like, this is what women should do, and this is as good as it will be. I think they were just drawing on experiences from their own lives – and yeah, yeah, those experiences so captured the profound unhappiness of mostly lower class women. Yes, yes, exactly. So, but before we get to Helga's family, which is just a treasure trove, um, let's Mr. talk about Wynn. Mr. Wynn uh, and how fucking heart wrenching <laughs> Mr. Wynn is. <laughs> Sorry. And they do, do, the, do this to us on the Christmas episode of season one. All right, season children. One. All right, children, gather around our fireplace while we tell you the heart-wrenching story of Mr. Huynh. Go watch the episode. If you don't want us to it's, spoil it, go watch it. It's the Christmas yeah, it's special. Arnold's Christmas in the first season. Um, but so Mr. Huynh is Vietnamese. And mm -hmm. this episode, like Mr. Huynh is hap unhappy on Christmas. And Arnold, being Arnold, wants to know why so he can fix it. So, And also because he's Mr. Wynn's secret Santa. Yeah, exactly. So Mr. Wynn tells Arnold the story of how he lived in this great place 
But then there was a war. Spoiler alert, it was the Vietnam War. And, <laughs> and he basically, the country was getting violent. And he said, I wanted my daughter to have a life. So he ran to a military checkpoint where there were where, a bunch of Vietnamese people trying to leave the country on one of the last U.S. choppers out of the country. And, and for those of you who don't know, when the U.S. was pulling out, we did a garbage job. Like, we came in, we ruined this whole country, we subjected it to horrific violence, and then just, like, booked it out of there. So there's literally, you're, there's footage of, of Vietnamese people who are now, like, internally displaced in their country and essentially refugees because of the violence, like running to try and get on U.S. helicopters and boats and stuff to try and get out because they don't know, like, it's going to be completely unstable and they don't know what's going to happen, right? So, Mr. But, uh, go on. Yeah, so the there's, like, this heart-wrenching, like, beige-scale drawing going on and this, the, this chopper is about to fly off and Mr. Huynh is trying to get to the chopper and he's got his baby. And so he holds up his baby out of the crowd and at the behest, thank God, a U.S. soldier had the decency to mm -hmm. care, even an iota. He, like, they took his baby and... He was satisfied knowing that at least his daughter would not have to be subjected to post-war trouble. So he yeah. eventually... And he says the U.S. soldier shouts out the name of a city, right? Right. Um, so he, so knows, he knows what city she's in. So he moves to... He leaves Vietnam when he can. And he moves to New York. Well, okay. Or he moves Hillwood, yeah. to Hillwood <laughs> to find... To, to find his daughter, and he never has. And he never has been able to. And so that's why he sat on Christmas, because he thinks about his daughter. And I swear to God, I was crying so yeah, hard. Yeah, I was just weeping. Oh, I my. was just like, Jesus Christ. This is a show oh with nine-year-old kids. This is a show for nine-year-old kids. And they're telling this terrible, heart-wrenching story about v the Vietnam War. Guys, like real, like real fucking story about the Vietnam. Like, and they they managed to make it very real without like getting into all this stuff about like should America have been there and like who was right. Like, they don't get into any of that, but they get into the idea that like, look, no matter what you think, the country was incredibly destabilized at this time, and there was a lot of violence happening, and it was scary, you know. So they oh. set out to try and find his daughter. That's the plot. And I uh, won't, Arnold and Gerald, yeah. I won't spoil the rest of the episode, but it's a cartoon, so it has a happy ending. Mr. Huynh finds his daughter, and yeah. it's a moving reunion. Um, yeah. There's a little touch of um, Gift of the Magi. There's the first time we get to see Helga not being utterly selfish. Oh, my God. Okay, um, Helga's the superstar, of that episode, like from, yeah, from like, a nine-year-old's perspective, from a from a general perspective, she doesn't give up that much to make that happen. Yeah. But from a kid's perspective, who gets she the gives perfect up everything? She she from the for the perfect gift that she's wanted, and it's not even that much, but to her, it's like super special. She gives it up. She gives it up for Arnold, but she still gives it up out of empathy. 
not mm-hmm. only for Mr. Quinn, but she's thinking about how bad Arnold must feel about failing. And so that's the first moment where you're like, Helga's done some cool stuff before, but Helga is legitimately deep down a good person. Yeah. And also, it's, like, also the first time that you see that, like, maybe Helga's feelings about Arnold aren't really just your typical childhood crush because she talks about why she likes him and how he's not like her and he can't handle this, like, crushing emotional blow. She's, like, he's so empathetic and, like, believes in miracles, you know, and believes in the goodness of people and helping people. And like, I'm tough and I can make it, you know, like I can deal with a crushing blow, but Arnold can't. And like, he'll lose that thing that makes him special. He'll lose that belief in, in miracles and belief in the inherent goodness of the world. And I can't let that happen. Like, that's what makes Arnold so special. Uh, We're so close to being able to talk about Helga because, because her as his guard, as the guardian angel of his innocence, is like a oh huge, my God. is a huge aspect of the show. But okay, so Mr. Quinn so much. Mr. <laughs> Quinn is really cool in his own right in other episodes. Sometimes he acts like a crotchety dude. Um, mm-hmm. But he's overall an endearing character. He he's almost, so nice. <laughs> he almost becomes a country star, which is cool. Like beautiful country voice. As a kid. <laughs> being exposed to like a person of Southeast Asian descent, being a country star was probably good for diversity's sake. Um, Oh yeah. The show is super diverse, by the way, just a little plug for not doing lip service to, to diversity, but to actually showing a really functioning, deep, diverse neighborhood, like kids reflecting their cultural backgrounds without being stereotypes like adults too. Overall, you see like you see like Polish, Black, various like Phoebe's Japanese. Mr. Huy. I think is she's Vietnamese. half Japanese. She's half Japanese. She's half Japanese. Um, yeah. You see, you see a variety Stinky's of Stinky's weirdly southern for some reason. <laughs> yeah. They live in the middle of a city, but they live in a wood cabin. It's really funny. <laughs> it's very funny. So ult- yeah. overall. Nickelodeon had a very diverse set of characters on their shows. And I think that that ultimately it didn't feel forced. Like somebody nowadays would be like those damn SJWs and their, their black people in TV shows made for white kids. Like, yeah. Like, and it's like, well, it's like, you know, those criticisms of girls. It's like what these young women in their twenties in New York city, like don't know a single queer person or a person of color. Like that's absurd. Of course, course they would and this shows the same way it's like these could like they live in a new york city like in a big city analog of course there's it's not going to be just like all white kids everywhere they're obviously going to know you know there's going to be kids of color and kids of different classes um you know mingling with one another right yeah which actually i think we should talk i i'm going to say it right now we should do two episodes because i think so yeah because, because it's like we should we should talk about the messages that little girls might get out of the show and the way that the show deals with gender and sex because there's some interesting stuff in there, but we should talk about that next time. Yeah, I think what I would like to do is I want to talk about Helga's family and I want to talk about Arnold himself a little bit 
Um, Arnold himself is a lot, so it might spill over to the beginning of the next episode. But we've already been talking for like 45 minutes. So I think if we talk about Helga's family and a little bit about Arnold, and then we can finish our discussion in a second episode. Yeah, and Helga, um, I haven't really dumped too much psych stuff on here, mostly because there's just so much good literary sort of just just general discussion to be had about the show and its quality. Mm -hmm. But Helga's family is very, I would say her parents are dismissive parenting style parents. And Mm -hmm. so, okay, so they're, they teeter between authoritarian and dismissive. And yes, Helga herself exemplifies on one hand, she exemplifies what I would call a like a dismissive attachment style because she's very rough and to the public exposes a very I don't care about you, I don't love thing, love things yeah. sort of thing. But on the inside, I actually think she's more anxious, ambivalent because she she reflects a deep desire to connect with people, but she's afraid of being vulnerable. And yeah, well, actually, so, like, no, she bitches gonna, and comp- sorry, I'm going to say complain- that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> she bitches and complains about her sister all the time. Her perfect sister, Olga and how her parents like care way more about Olga and how perfect she is and ignore her. But when, and like she acts really angry about it, like kind of justifiably. But then whenever there is any kind of opportunity to succeed in the ways that Olga has succeeded and make her parents proud in the same way, she will destroy every other relationship in her life to achieve that. Yeah, she um, Helga Pataki could Olga have G Pataki could have been following the like mean blonde girl stereotype that Angelica set for us but she is not that she is many things she is a duplicity she's yeah she's incredibly complex like there is so much to Helga okay so like for before Helga herself her family members um Helga uh, Helga's mother Miriam is clearly an alcoholic. So I, and I don't think it was an accident. I think it is 100% on purpose. Her mom is an alcoholic. I, I Her mother... There are clues. Many. The way, that, the way that she behaves... Dopey. She makes smoothies, but half the time I feel like that's just a kid-friendly analogy... The first time we ever, okay, so the first time we ever hear Helga's mom is through a door and she sounds super out of it. And she's like, Helga, like, are you okay? And Helga's like, leave me alone, mom. And she's like, okay. And then the first time we see her at all, we don't see her face. We see her hands. There's a blender with something red in it. And she's holding a bottle of Tabasco sauce over the blender. Like, That is a Bloody Mary. Like, there is nothing else that that is besides a Bloody Mary. So our our pet theory is that she 
at the very least behaves like an alcoholic. And the more yes. you learn about her relationship with Helga's dad, you're just like, I don't blame you for being an alcoholic because she, yeah. she used to be an Olympic class swimmer. She was an Olympic class swimmer who married young for love. She fell in love with Helga's father. And now there are so many open hints that she's super unhappy with her marriage. She's miserable. So one when one, Olga's going to get married, she literally shouts, don't, don't do make what the I same did. mistake I did in front of both of her daughters and her husband. Yeah. Yeah. So, her, oh my God, that was the moment where I'm just like, wow, this lady needs to leave. But she's, she, she exemplifies like what, what is a woman in her situation to do if she doesn't want to lose her life? Not yeah. literally, mostly materially. Yeah. And you see, you know, like she, um, you can see part of what must be so frustrating about living with Bob. Cause there's one point where Bob's getting really like competitive and hyper-masculine, which is his whole character. And you hear Miriam from another room go, Oh, Bob, please don't start in this completely <laughs> resigned way. <laughs> <laughs> which is just so real. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, I, that, I just remember that moment. Cause I laughed really, really it's, I hard. I laughed so hard. <laughs> um, I like. I think I had to pause the show. But it's like it's a like tragic. It's really sad for her. But it's, it's a really so tragic great. laugh. It's a super yeah. tragic laugh. Ultimately, she is not a happy character in this show. She exists oh, yeah. not only to be Bob's unhappy wife, but to be the mother that Helga hates. Not hates, yeah. dislikes immensely. She calls her Miriam. She has one of those parent-child relationships where she doesn't call her mom mom. She calls her by her first name. Mm-hmm. And with her and dad. She's nine. It's not like she's like 14 doing that. She is nine years old. I would argue that Helga has already matured to a teenage phase. Oh, yeah, because her home life is god-awful. And, like, I wonder sometimes with Miriam and how, like, she clearly, like, loves Helga and tries. But, like, I think she's drunk all the time. And if not drunk, like, severely depressed and just, like, can't function. And I wonder, you look at, like, who Olga was, okay? Um, and Olga would have... What, like... I bet Olga was an easy child. Either Olga was an easy child or Bob decided that they were going to make Olga a perfect child. And because it was important to Bob, um, Miriam went along with it and just became completely burned out. And when she could see that, like, Bob wasn't going to put any effort into their second, much younger child, she was just like, I can't. I don't have any more. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I can't do this by myself. I, I My theory is because Olga was a first child that she exhibited, like, what we've researched birth order. Birth order has mm -hmm. predictive effects. That Yes, it does. She was an easy child. She excelled on her own, and her parents were kind of allowed to bask in her success, and Bob cared about her, so he probably supported 
her more, but her mother definitely put a lot of energy into it. And she probably did get a little burnt out, maybe not because of Olga, but because they had been married for so long and all of the things accrued emotional debt that by the time Olga was born, she was finding, she was either super depressed or finding uh, alcohol to cope. So we've got, we've got this person who we, we get no sign that things are going to get better. Those. No. And like, by the way, Olga was the perfect child and stuff, but Olga is incredibly fragile. Like, and it's something that I really empathize with as actually a firstborn. Not that my parents treated me in any way, the way that like Olga's, like the Patakis treated Olga, but like how she's always excelled to the point where like anything beyond like absolute exception is a tragedy on par with death to Olga. I mean, she cannot deal with any disappointment, any failure, nothing. Helga, in one of her many attempts to crush her sister, because of her parents' relationship with Olga, she changes Olga's report card grade from an A to a B, and Olga literally goes into broken heart syndrome almost, and super depressed, can't get out of bed, cries all the time. So you're right. She's, uh, she's, she's, an, she's an orchid. She's she's mm-hmm. beautiful, but she she could get blown over by the slightest breeze. And Helga, yeah. ironically, will do the best of anybody out of that entire family in the mm-hmm. long run because Olga will fail at some point. And when she fails, she, there's she no will, coming back for it. From she, it for her. she will not be able to cope. Yeah. Whereas Helga, like, despite the fact that she is having a difficult childhood, um, like, she's still, you see, she's still excelling in school. She has the same raw talents. Like, she excels in school. She's an incredible self-trained poet at the age of nine, you know, and, and she's tough. She can deal with emotional difficulties, and she does it in a way that... um she lashes out, but like once she has time to deal with it, she she processes it and her, like her moves coping, on. She uses coping mechanisms that will, if they become extensive, become maladaptive. But for her age, she's coping okay. Yeah. She's doing yeah. what she needs to do to not be crushed by her family. And what's so interesting about because Helga is her struggles are not in any way due to money. We, we, we do a lot of class analysis stuff, but it's interesting because her family is fairly well off. So all of her struggles are due to interpersonal problems that, I don't know. I I don't know if there's anything to say about that, but it's just like they're purely emotional problems. So it's like the thing is like Helga in terms of her material circumstance, Helga's going to be fine, which is why given the types of coping mechanisms we see her display 
and the fact that we know she's going to be fine materially, if she can just get some therapy, like she's going to be okay, you know, like because she's like an incredibly rich and like complex character, like probably the most complex character on the entire show. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, her love for Arnold starts off as, as kind of a joke at first, but mm-hmm. no, she's an amazing poet. She truly has feelings for Arnold that aren't just empty love because she sacrifices for it. She at one point actively chooses the pain of unrequited love over the malaise of nothing. Mm-hmm. So she chooses yeah. the love for herself and... She doesn't know how to publicly deal with that for good reason, because the kids are little shits and she's absolutely, she's learned from her parents how to cope with the stings of other people's shit. And so she's using the same coping mechanism and it's holding her back from attaining this love. But at the same time, it makes total sense. And she's fully aware of it too. You know, in her soliloquy, she's like, why, like, why can I not? She's like, why do I have to be this way? Like, I really care about you and you're a really good person. And I try so hard to, like, get to spend time with you. And then I just can't seem to stop myself from, like, torturing you, you know? And, like, it's a, like, she doesn't have the enough powers of insight yet as a child to figure it out. Defensive mechanisms oftentimes don't operate on a completely conscious level. So Mm -hmm. consciously she realizes she has this problem, but her brain is basically responding a little bit on autopilot when exposed to stress or trying stimuli. So yeah, self-sabotage is not self-directed a lot of the time. It's learning. It's like your brain learns to behave a certain way and... Mm -hmm. Even when you're like, stop it, brain, that's, uh, yeah, that's just, just a thing that you have to, like, therapy will help remove that over time, but she's nine and not seeing a therapist. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's like, I feel like I could talk about like Helga for like three hours. So I'm sure that we'll have more things to say about Helga, um, on the next episode, but let's just, can we dive into Arnold just a little bit, just touch on him, um, before we wrap up here, because I actually find Arnold, um, really very interesting. Arnold is, Arnold is an altruist. He is an artist. He has soul. I don't know. He's, He's a lot of things, but I think Helga gets it right when he, he's an innocent artist, is what he is. Mm-hmm. I think that I've told you about this before and uh, not gone into it because I wanted to save it. I believe that Arnold is the proto Finn from Adventure Time. Like, yes. I think that we have no Finn Mertens without Arnold. And okay. Like, we can say they're also both archetypal, like they're both like an everyman hero, and that's true. But what we see from both Arnold and Finn is a person who is profoundly empathetic and kind and giving at times to a fault. 
at times to where it hurts him. Like the his desire to help others and make others' lives better will hurt him, right? And so much of his growth as a character is about learning what is the right thing and learning about sometimes you can't help people or people that you try to help will take advantage of you or they don't want your help or you don't know the right way to help or you tried to help and you did it wrong, right? And I think that Arnold explored that character in the guise of like a nine-year-old dealing with sort of very everyday nine-year-old problems. And then we take that model of Arnold and put it into a world where the stakes are much higher and we get Finn, right? I'd buy it. I'd buy it. I Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we'd, I, I, I would be curious to know if Pendleton Ward actually watched any Adventure Time. Or I, <laughs> I wonder if Pendleton Ward watched Adventure Time. I uh, don't know. <laughs> no, I wonder. Well, sometimes people don't watch the things they create, so maybe he didn't. But That's true. I, I wonder if he ever watched Hey Arnold, because if he didn't, then I wonder if that was just this, like, if either A, you're wrong, no offense, but, um, <laughs> or, or B, that it was just, like, in the cultural consciousness and it just got back to him. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that's kind of what I mean. Because whether or not... Because I don't think Pendleton Ward necessarily... Even if he was like, oh yeah, I loved Hang Arnold as a huge influence. I don't think he was consciously like recreating that character. I think when I when I say that like you can't have X later thing without like a like earlier thing, what I typically mean is like without the changes that that created in the cultural consciousness, without the ground that that broke in the animation industry, it just, it doesn't happen. You just don't get to the point where you can have it. Right. So it's like whether or not, um, anyone who works on adventure time or has worked on adventure time would say like, yeah, we agree. Like there's a lot of Arnold in Finn. Like, I still don't think that we would have a character like Finn without a character like Arnold, right? Okay. I understand your point much better now. <laughs> I still yeah, I still agree with with what you were saying. And while Arnold is not running around swinging swords with a dog, <laughs> he's he's out battling a variety of problems, mostly trying to solve things without conflict. But sometimes yeah. he just gets his ass thrown in a trash can and there's nothing he can do about it. Exactly. Yeah, they're both just like, like want desperately to believe that the world is good in the way that they are so good. And a lot of the troubles and conflicts that they have are when the world shows them that the that it's not as good as they want it to be. Right. And their their never-ending struggle to sort of mold the world into their own image in the most positive possible way. I mean, I think adults in Hey Arnold are both, but pretty much all mm -hmm. the adults in Adventure Time are negative influences on Finn. Or at least like a, a mixed bag to where like they're the negative influences like balance them out but we'll do a whole thing on adventure time later <laughs> um we will get there we promise you we will get to adventure time <laughs> um but yeah absolutely like, yeah i just think that um 
that is so much of what Arnold is and so much of what the show is about is just him being a kind person who wants to help where help is needed and not always knowing how to do it and not always succeeding, but also very often succeeding and, and bringing a lot of like joy to the people around him. Yeah, you could argue that he was he could have been a kind of vapid proto bro. Mm-hmm. But he's not. He's he he has great creative like feeling and talent, good empathetic like good empathy skills, the motivation to actually do dirty work. Yeah, just a lot of determination, like a lot of determination. Like, more than I have, I guess, <laughs> an adult. Yeah, I'm watching these shows, I'm like, wow, these people do a lot of stuff. Yeah, right? It's like, I, like, just have to, like, make this podcast and also read books, and sometimes I'm like, I don't have all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I also work a job, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's also a drawn character, so obviously <laughs> he's not doing real work. <laughs> but yeah, if, yeah. anyway, Arnold overall is a good main character to have, but he's Oh yeah. Know, he's he's the main character, but he's kind of not he's he's the main character, but so much of the action is other people that mm-hmm. he, you can't really have a show about Arnold without his community, and I think that that talking about the importance of community and Arnold. I mm-hmm. think that that is, that's the thing he values most. It's the thing that he fights for the most. And that with the show is truly about his community. It's the, the show is, Hey Arnold. And it's mm-hmm. always other people saying, Hey Arnold. Yeah. So really the show is about him and other people. Ha. Yeah, I tied it into the like, title. I am a genius. Yeah, you're incredible. I bow. I bow down before you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> if if not a traditional main character, then Arnold is the heart and moral center of the show, right? That's a very accurate statement. Yeah, that's my that's my conclusion. Um, okay, we have been talking for a long time, and I don't want people to get bored listening to this. So yes, we will. Um, we we as as it seems we're prone to be doing. We'll do another episode about this particular show because there's so much. You should go watch Hey Arnold. You should go watch it. I yeah. It's on Hulu. Do it. Um, we'll talk at the end of the next episode about our enjoyment of the show and like we did with Rugrats. Um, but I will just say right now, like I've been really really enjoying it. Um, like. Go watch it. I'll probably try and watch um, the rest of the show before we record the second episode on it. And, you know, watch watch with us, you know. The previous analysis was based on episodes between season one and season three and a half. Yeah, I'm almost finished with season three. Chris is about halfway through. So we're both more than halfway through the series. Um, I don't think we're going to watch the movies because for now we're just going to keep it where we watch the television run of things and don't get into the the movies. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Chris. Yeah, that's – and I'm Paige. And this has been Animates. Um, We are now officially on iTunes. Uh, If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe and also rate and review the show so that it actually – 
shows up when people search for it. Uh, and, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.